Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 116, June 5th to June 11th, 1863. Last week, we talked about siege warfare that is unfolding out in the West. Vicksburg and Port Hudson are going to be preludes to the type of fighting we will see next year around Richmond. We also talked about some politics and Democratic copperheads. Believe it or not, we are already on the road to Gettysburg, so we will be setting the table in the coming few weeks. We get to combine both East and West in this episode with an action in an attempt to support the besieged city at Milliken's Bend. First, though, we're going to shift focus back to Virginia and fight the Battle of Brandy Station. Of course, before we do that, just a quick plug. We do have Patreon content. This one is going to be a memoir review, and it's Max Lee Sorrell. Serves as a staff officer under James Longstreet. And then he goes on, actually, to command troops in the field in a combat capacity so he's talking about some of the things that we have talked about that uh, we are going to get into here in the summer so i figured it would be a good companion to that and then of course we're we're probably going to be getting into some pretty heavily focused uh, movie episodes in the patreon we have some events that are lining up fairly quickly here in not only Gettysburg, of course, uh, the attack on Fort Wagner, that's going to be the movie Glory with Matthew Broderick, and then also we have to talk about Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, Ride with the Devil. So those are three pretty big hitters in terms of movies that we're probably going to be tackling here. We might do some memoir reviews. We might actually throw in some picture slideshows. So if any of that sounds like that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description and of course the proceeds not only get you that extra episode there but also go toward the general upkeep of the show june 9th 1863 we have the largest cavalry engagement to occur on american soil now sometimes there is a little bit of contention in that statement because there are infantry numbers that go into brandy station that are often overlooked and then There are those who are like, well, that makes it not really a true cavalry engagement, uh, but it is the largest uh, in terms of numbers. To understand why, we need to look back at what we mentioned last week in starting to set up the Gettysburg campaign. Lee is going to want to move into Northern Territory. To do this, he will use the tried-and-true highway that is the Shenandoah Valley. Jeb Stuart is going to be crucial to screening the movements of his infantry as they track north. Confederate cavalry would therefore be massing near Culpeper, which is going to be the jump-off point of Lee seeking to take the initiative. Stuart is going to fully have his flair on display by holding grand reviews of his horsemen. Many officers, including Lee, would attend at least one of the reviews as they went through maneuvers, in addition to also some civilians, including some women, which obviously Stuart really enjoyed. Grand Spectacles would include a mock charge on a battery, firing blanks in the faces of the oncoming troopers, most likely 
again for the benefit of the ladies present. Lee would write about how splendid the horses and men looked, but he might have been disappointed if he was aware of what was transpiring on the other side of the Rappahannock. Hooker had sent Gregg and Buford, subordinates under Alf Pleasanton, to reconnoiter the enemy. They would report of there being mass cavalry in the vicinity of Culpeper. While the Union general was unaware of Lee's idea, he was concerned that Stuart was going to try another raid. This was logical given his record so far. He had hit Pope's line of supply in 1862 and ridden around McClellan twice. Having been bested at Chancellorsville, Hooker was probably determined not to be a loser again. It's also, he is really wanting to continue in terms of an offensive action. So if we think about it like that, any kind of hindrance to his supply as he goes deeper into Confederate territory, especially as he approaches Richmond, which is his ultimate goal, that's going to be a problem. His new cavalry chief, Alfred Pleasanton, would be given the task of destroying or dispersing the enemy at Culpeper, nipping the rebels before they could cause any trouble. Fords already used in the campaigning would be used to accomplish this task. John Buford would lead a division across Beverly Ford and move on Brandy Station. With Buford's wing would be a brigade of infantry under Adelbert Ames. David Gregg would lead the other wing, which included his own division, along with that of the Frenchman Alfred Natty Dufy, and another infantry brigade under David Russell. This contingent would move across Kelly's Ford and link up with Buford at Brandy Station. All in all, there were 9,000 troopers and 3,000 infantry going up against approximately 10,000 rebel horsemen. At around 4.30 a.m., the attack went into motion. Buford's wing would push across Beverly Ford and engage the rebel pickets posted there. After a sharp fight, they would push them out. Grimes Davis leading his brigade down the Beverly Ford Road toward the Rebel Horse Artillery. The 6th and 7th Virginia would gather enough men for a counter-strike, some of the Confederate troops riding without saddles and not fully dressed to meet the enemy. Such was the surprise. Davis would engage a Confederate lieutenant, missing with a saber strike, before taking a fatal pistol shot to the head. Grumble Jones would continue to engage the enemy. Stuart arriving to the field. Hampton's brigade would start to form up on a ridge near St. James Church, making a new defensive line ready to receive the remainder of Buford's command. It would be artillery used on the high ground that would be the difference in the battle. Major Robert Beckham, who had graduated West Point in 1859 and who had taken over for Pelham following his death, would show good service on the day. At this point, Thomas Devon's brigade and the reserve brigade under Charles Whiting would make their way to the field, as would the infantry under Ames. A young officer on Pleasanton's staff named George Armstrong Custer would join into the early fighting, distinguishing himself in the action. Wade Hampton had joined in the line along with artillery around St. James Church. The 6th Pennsylvania would launch a daring charge and almost capture the guns. There are many descriptions of the attack, including the following excerpt. We had to leap three wide, deep ditches 
and many of our horses and men piled up in a writhing mass in those ditches and were ridden over. It was here that Major Morris's horse fell badly with him and broke away from him, and when he got up, thus leaving him dismounted and bruised by the fall. I didn't know that Morris was not with us, and we dashed on, driving the rebels into and through the woods, our men fighting with the saber alone, whilst they used principally pistols. Our brave fellows cut them out of the saddle and fought like tigers, until I discovered they were on both flanks, pouring a crossfire of carbines and pistols on us, and then tried to rally my men and make them return the fire with their carbines. This gives you a pretty good idea also, and uh, we've mentioned it actually in some memoir reviews that we've talked about. The Confederates really sort of phase out sabers. Some of them do have sabers. Cavalry on both sides is going to resort more into carbines and, and rapid-fire weapons, and that kind of gives you a pretty good idea of how the Confederates are receiving this particular saber charge. Many of the horses would return riderless at the conclusion. The 6th U.S. Cavalry would attack to relieve the pressure on the battered 6th Pennsylvania, but they were met in a bloody struggle by the 11th, 12th, and 35th Virginia, the 35th Battalion, also known as the Comanches. Rooney Lee deployed his men along Stonewall and struggled for a time with the 5th U.S. Cavalry. This line was actually on the flank of the Union position. Hopefully it would make more sense on a map, which I also hope to post to the website. Buford would then deploy his remaining forces, which included the Infantry Brigade. Stewart would then order his artillery to concentrate on the infantry after beating back attacks by Devon. The St. James Church part of the fighting would then come to a pause, a stalemate, but the other Yankee wing was going to make things very uncomfortable for Jeb. David Gregg and his wing had not had a good start to the day. They waited for three hours while Alfred Duffy's division arrived, the Frenchmen having taken a wrong road. David Russell's infantry would secure Kelly's Ford, pushing back the Confederate pickets under Beverly Robertson. Robertson was going to have a forgettable performance on the day. He would inform Stuart of the presence of the enemy, but do very little in blocking them. In fact, his North Carolina troopers would spend their time skirmishing with Russell's infantry, securing the ford for the return journey. They would lose only four horses on the day, arriving too late to Fleetwood Hill. This was the destination of the Federal Wing, but they would take a longer route despite hearing the sounds of Buford's fight. Defee would continue on towards Stevensburg, with Gregg actually advancing toward Brandy Station in the rear of Stewart's position. Grumble Jones would inform Stewart that the enemy was now approaching their flank and rear. Stewart responded that Jones should worry about the Yankees to his front, and let him worry about the flanks. Famously, Grumble Jones would remark, So he thinks they ain't coming, does he? Well, let him alone. He'll damn well soon see for himself. With a nickname like Grumble, you certainly can hear him say it. Henry McClellan, a staff officer of Stewart's, and actually first cousin of George B., would realize the danger and order a battery to open up on the enemy until help could arrive. It was said that Stuart for a moment did seem rattled. Not normally a sentiment the rebel chief displayed. He would leave Rooney Lee to check Buford and shift Jones and Hampton toward the oncoming threat. The mad struggle for Fleetwood Hill would include many charges and countercharges. Saber, pistol, and carbine were used by both sides in the desperate fight. 
the 12th and 35th Virginia would collide with the leading elements of Wyndham's brigade in the 1st New Jersey. Wyndham, who you remember, was the target of Mosby during the Fairfax Courthouse raid, would be wounded in the fighting. Judson Kilpatrick would engage the forces of Wade Hampton, Kilpatrick always being good for a reckless cavalry charge, one in which he was able to engage his West Point rival in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So a pretty good day, probably, for Kill Cavalry. At one point, Kilpatrick would bark to the first main that it was up to them to save the day, before leading them into the melee. Robert E. Lee had arrived with other officers and staff to observe the fighting. At one point, it was questionable as to whether their position was safe, General Ewells actually suggesting they should barricade the house they watched from and fight it out, but fortunately enough for them, they would not be forced to do so. Now Hampton was upset some of his command had been left to man the St. James Church line, so he was not able to pursue the beaten enemy. The 11th Virginia was able to capture some Union guns, which had been the object for the struggle for most of the fighting. Having successfully reformed, Buford would then turn his attention back toward Lee, who still occupied a position behind a stone wall. He would surmise that he could flank this spot held by the gray-clad troopers, now essentially alone. Infantry would move forward to pour a devastating fire on the wall, pushing their foe back. The 6th Pennsylvania and 6th U.S. Cavalry would attack, meeting men from the 9th Virginia of Lee's line. Facing pressure from the Union forces, Lee would withdraw his men from the stone wall and behind U Ridge. Remarkably, some men of the 6th Pennsylvania had been saved by the oncoming Union troops, lying in a ditch pinned down by enemy fire. The 9th would turn and face their pursuers, the hunted becoming the hunter. It was then that the 2nd U.S. Cavalry, commanded by Wesley Merritt, entered the fighting. Out flew the sabers, Buford would write and handsomely they were used. Lee would then throw in his other regiments into the fray. We have a description from a North Carolina trooper. About four o'clock in the afternoon, Lee put himself at the head of my regiment, and gave the order to charge up the hill, he riding at the head. When we got to the summit of the hill, there, some 200 yards away, stood a long line of blue-coated cavalry. Lee dashed at the center of this line with his columns of four. The Yankees were cut in two, but each of their flanks closed in, and then a most terrible affray with sabers and pistols took place. We got the best of it, and we had soon killed, wounded, or captured almost all of them. Merritt would actually find himself in the midst of Confederates, alone with a fellow officer. He would boldly demand the surrender of none other than Rooney Lee himself. Lee would respond by dueling Merritt with his saber an action that nicked the federal officer before he was able to escape back to the Union lines. Lee was then wounded before pressing the advantage. Thomas Munford, commanding the brigade for Fitzhugh Lee, who was sick, would arrive in the vicinity of the action, but he would not engage Buford. In a similar action to Robertson, he would have little to do with the fight. Buford, having fought for the majority of the day, would then retire. There would be further action south at Stevensburg. Alfred Dufay and his division arrived under orders to protect the flank of the cavalry by Pleasanton. Facing them was a small force of one of Wade Hampton's regiments, joined by the 4th Virginia, the Black Horse Cavalry. Matthew Butler, 
A lawyer before the war, he will go on to be a senator and general during the Spanish-American War, would command the small units. Frank Hampton, brother of Wade, would stall the Union advance with only some 200 men. Defay had grown tired of the action and charged the enemy position, Hampton being mortally wounded as a result. Remarkably, though, Defay would not throw his entire force in, allowing for a new Confederate line to be made north of the city. It would be this new line where an artillery round would kill valuable scout Will Farley, as well as wound Butler, resulting in the amputation of his leg. Farley had attended the University of Virginia and was known to carry copies of Shakespeare in his saddlebags. We have a description of the wounding here. A 12-pound shell from the enemy's gun on the hill. We had evidently been located by a field glass. Struck the ground around 30 steps from our position in an open field, ricocheted, and passed through my right leg above the ankle, through Farley's horse, and took off his right leg at the knee. My horse bounded in the air, threw me, sat on all, flat on my back in the road, when the poor fellow moved off with his entrails hanging out toward the clover field where he had been gazing in the early morning, and died there, as I was afterwards informed. Oftentimes I think we talk about the Civil War and, and we mention artillery in particular, how there is probably more of an emphasis on shells and exploding ordnance. And you would think in a modern lens, you probably want more of that. That's probably a better tool to use in combat. But we also need to talk about solid shot and how that's particularly effective in terms of being an anti-personnel weapon. Not so much as maybe grape or canister, but there are all kinds of instances that you see in these memoirs where there are soldiers who are not particularly excited about facing solid shot. And while maybe it is a little bit easier to pick up than your shells, it is also fairly deadly. And it can be, if in an instance like this, it kind of bounces and ricochets. Also, you see accounts of newer troops who see rolling ordnance of solid shot and they try to stop it with hands or feet and that does not end particularly well for them so it is interesting to see in this first-hand account the actual effect the french-born union general would receive orders to disengage despite his success and the fact that the new rebel line was no stronger than their first he would arrive in time to cover greg's retreat Union troopers would write that they were confused at the orders to give up the field. Pleasanton, though, was satisfied with the day. The Battle of Brandy Station was over. But what exactly do we make of Brandy Station? Losses seemed lopsided, so Pleasanton did not in fact deal a blow to Stuart's cavalry, as was his supposed intent. Overall, there were 866 casualties on the Union side, compared to 433 on the Confederate side. The field was left in possession of the enemy, Stuart re-establishing his headquarters on Fleetwood Hill in defiance. Pleasanton would later claim he had captured dispatches outlining the Confederate plans for invasion, but this is actually a false claim. He had not uncovered the movements north. In fact, Lee is going to begin his planned movements on June 10th, delayed by one day from his original jump-off. So it did not uncover anything nor did it destroy or disperse Stuart, as was the intention, but it did give confidence to the Union cavalry wing. Gone was the superiority of rebel horsemen, 
the Union troops had arrived. Henry McClellan would write as such of Brandy Station, saying it made the Union cavalry. Pleasanton was well pleased, but he would begin reshaping the Corps once again. DeFay would be out, and Kilpatrick promoted. In Little Kill's division, he would have two brigades, one under Elon Farnsworth, who displayed good skill and leadership during the fighting, and another one, a young, soon-to-be-promoted officer named George Armstrong Custer. For Buford, Thomas Devon would take over for Grimes Davis, and Wesley Merritt likewise promoted. Stewart would actually receive criticism following the victory. Despite winning, he was surprised. If Pleasanton had combined his two wings, it might have proven disastrous for the rebels. One only needs to think that if Buford's attack was sort of the holding motion, and then you have Greg coming in behind in this pincer movement, then Brandy Station could have been not only a morale boost for the Union Cavalry, but it also could have been a devastating victory. Some Richmond papers even implied that the Confederacy needed a new cavalry chief. While this may not be fair, it is entirely fair to say that Stuart relied heavily on capable subordinate officers during the battle. One has to think of these critiques, and maybe throw it into the pot that leads to his decision to effectively remove himself from the army prior to Gettysburg. June 7th, we have action at Milliken's Bend. Now, what made this action in particular very unique is that it pitted mostly black regiments against attacking Confederates. So we do need to rewind just a little bit in order to get the full story. We have mentioned Grant and his efforts to solidify his lines of supply and potentially use the formerly enslaved for that purpose. Once it was announced there would be colored regiments serving in the army, then it seemed like a good use of the available manpower. In previous episodes, we have highlighted the mix of opinions amongst the northern troops about this recruitment. Some were for it, some against, some deserted as a result. There was also a prevailing thought that black soldiers were just as good for the purpose of stopping a bullet. Then there were also those who believed that these regiments would be better served in garrison duty. This would effectively free up troops currently serving in that capacity to engage the enemy. Because of this, many of the regiments would receive subpar equipment and training, including weapons, which will play into our story shortly. The Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas was in particular fond of the project of recruitment for these regiments in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi. In 1863, he would tour these areas, most likely also because he did not get along with Halleker Stanton, who... Truth be told, probably saw a good opportunity to get rid of him for a bit. One particular instance, there was almost a mutiny of troops listening to a speech before Black Jack Logan stepped in to calm the men down. You see, Thomas needed to have white officers to command these regiments. He would call for veteran volunteers who could in fact elevate their rank if they did so, so NCOs could become officers fairly easily. Of course, they would retain their current rank until a substitute was found. The motivations of these men, as we can imagine, were not always for racial equity and justice. Despite many volunteers filling the rank and file, there were not always the best recruiting practices either, some with a heavier hand. Pay for the soldiers in the regiments of African descent would start off as the same wage a laborer in the army would receive, which was definitely appealing to many. 
with fellow northern troops sometimes not accepting their new comrades, it's hard to imagine the difficulty these men faced. Two Illinois cavalrymen would get into an altercation with one of the regiments at Milliken's Bend, assaulting a soldier and a formerly enslaved individual before being whipped by the men of the regiment. This action would actually cause the removal of the brigade commander shortly before the battle. One might be wondering the Confederate response. As you can imagine, they were not happy. Officers of black regiments would be executed if captured, and black troops themselves would be returned to servitude. More than likely, the general policy was going to be simply to not take prisoners, which is also going to play a part in our story. It's easy, I think, to simply say in certain instances that the rebels would do this because they were racist, and yeah, there is racism involved, sure, I'm not saying that, but to look a little bit deeper into this, and not simply write it off so quickly, I think is also important. Whites in these southern states, as we have highlighted back in 1861, were terrified of slave insurrection. We talked about some of the larger revolts, so there was a large effort made to prevention of any potential uprising. So the culture has an adverse feeling towards seeing former slaves armed with weapons, and that very thing is happening along the Mississippi. This does not excuse any actions, but I think it is important to note. In June of 1863, with Vicksburg under siege, there needed to be something done, albeit with little chance of success. Richard Taylor would send John Walker's Texas Division to attack posts along the river. This would include Milliken's Bend. Henry McCullough, the brother of Ben, would lead a brigade of Texas troops and would be given the task of assaulting this post. His Texas regiments were all low in terms of experience, some of them being dismounted cavalry. They would be armed with smoothbore buck and ball weapons mostly, just as disadvantaged as their enemy. At Milliken's Bend were the 8th to 13th Louisiana regiments of African descent in the 1st Mississippi. There were also about 120 men of the 23rd Iowa who had fought at the Big Black River, suffering casualties there. Crucially, there were also gunboats in the Choctaw and Lexington nearby. Swiss immigrant Herman Lieb commanded the outpost. A veteran who had listed as a private and then risen through the ranks, seen action at Shiloh and Fort Donaldson. Shortly before the 9th of June, there had been a similar attack at Perkins, Louisiana, Confederates skirmishing with the garrison there. So there was some sense of the need to be on the alert. Intelligence would report that the enemy was moving out toward them in strength. Walker's men would start marching at midnight on the 9th, arriving within striking distance in the early morning hours. The inexperienced rebels fired on their own cavalry, which alerted the garrison. Lee was able to get his men into line, but the Texans would be allowed to form up, assaulting through hedgerows at the blue-cried men. At close range, the buck and ball would be deadly, but the line became disorderly and crashed into the Federals, which would take away that advantage. Fighting was fierce, one account having a defender break off his musket through all the clubbing of the enemy he was doing before being shot several times. The 23rd Iowa would be overwhelmed and forced to withdraw, some of the regiments not standing their ground. It was at first reported that the 23rd had been first to break, but accounts would say otherwise, these men being veterans of the Big Black, where they had lost their colonel, and had assaulted the Confederate works on the 22nd of May at Vicksburg. 
Likely, it was the supporting units, but some would fight hard, particularly the 9th and 10th Louisiana, who would stand and fight, the 9th losing some 68% casualties, which, if you've been paying attention to some of these battlefields, that's an astounding rate. They would show that the formerly enslaved were suited for combat, just as well as any of their white counterparts. Having stood for a time at one levee, the northern troops would fall back to a second, and be saved by the federal gunboats, dissuading the Texans from advancing further. Even at the early hour of the day, the temperature was already at 95 degrees, and the Confederates were exhausted, with no artillery. Claiming victory, they would withdraw. Fighting was brief, and it was bloody. With 185 Confederate casualties compared against 652 on the Union side, a dreadful cost. The aftermath of the battle is interesting, and one of those moments in history where there are a lot of different reports. Charles Dana would initially report that the Confederates took no prisoners and flew a black flag. Charles Dana, of course, was not there. That's part of how you poke holes in that story. Some accounts have the rebels as shouting that they would give no quarter, and they most likely did not have a flag. There were actually some prisoners taken, which would get Walker reprimanded, and remember the goal being not to take any at all. Some of the recruits were not in uniform either, having not received them, which could have led to some violent reprisal. Remember what I mentioned about the southern culture in the region a little earlier. Wild stories would fly. A captured rebel stating he saw the hanging of federal officers, which more than likely did not occur. Even crazier stories would pop up like the officers were not only crucified, but burned alive as well. This was sensationalized by an account of the Marine Brigade that was printed in the papers. We actually have it here. The day after the Battle of Milliken's Bend, in June last, the Marine Brigade landed some 10 miles below the bend and attacked and routed the guerrillas, which had been repulsed by our troops and the gunboats the day previous. Major Hubbard's cavalry of the battalion of the Marine Brigade followed the retreating rebels to Tensus Bayou and were horrified in the finding of skeletons of white officers commanding Negro regiments who had been captured by the rebels at Milliken's Bend. In many cases, these officers had been nailed to trees and crucified. In this situation, a fire was built around the tree and they suffered a slow death from the broiling. The charred and partially burned limbs were still fastened to the stakes. Other instances were noticed of charred skeletons of officers, which had been nailed to slabs, and the slabs placed against a house, which was set on fire, the inhuman demons, the poor sufferers having been roasted alive until nothing was left but charred bones. Negro prisoners were recaptured from the guerrillas and confirmed these facts, which were amply corroborated by the bodies found, as above described. The Negroes taken were resold into slavery, while the white officers were consumed by fire. So that's a pretty wild account, and probably not accurate, although we do know that there were killings of white officers. That was sort of the policy of the Confederacy. But it is interesting to note also that there, there are a lot of ways in which you can kind of poke holes in this story. Like, how did you know that they were officers if it was just bones and, and whatnot? That's actually, I actually saw that in one of my sources. But... We, we get to sort of get the idea. There's kind of like this sensationalism around this battle that starts to either drill up support, get people riled up. It's all kind of going into that sort of propaganda piece. Rebels did hold a special contempt for white officers who blamed these men as abolitionists. 
captured enlisted men could have been returned to their former masters in the end. Some of the missing may have ended up simply going home. We'll talk about it when we get into the makeup of some of these regiments, but not all of them were particularly interested in serving in the army. So that is also pointed out that it's likely some of these guys just probably went home. Grant would write to Taylor about the treatment of prisoners, Taylor denying that there were orders to execute them. Grant, remember, was fond of Taylor's father, serving with him in Mexico, and would believe the response to be genuine. Let's call it a day there. We had Brandy Station, which officially opens the Gettysburg Campaign. We also had Milliken's Bend, which is the largest of the relief efforts for Vicksburg on the part of the Confederacy. Next week, we're going to continue in the same vein. First, we will talk about a few other actions that were also aimed to taking pressure off the besieged city. Secondly, we will continue with the Gettysburg Campaign as Lee begins to move further north. We will also have some naval action, so we're looking forward to another busy week. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.